0: This followed me into the service station. I guess he thought maybe I was going a little bit too fast. So I looked at him, I kind of smiled, and I said, i bet you thought I wouldn't make it, didn't you?
1: <laughs>
0: he was very kind. I'm not going to occupy too much of the time this afternoon because we have two people to speak to you who have messages to bring and certainly will be an inspiration to you as they have been to many others. Our first speaker of the afternoon is an erudite young man. You may take a bow from up at the Metropolis of Mew shoe, which sets up for on the Texas-New Mexico border. He's very fortunate in that he has a great amount of civic and national interest in addition to his AA interest. His story in AA is no less uh, important than the role that he plays in his own community. Some of you sometimes who don't know the story about the mule shoe story in the American flag ought to sit down and talk to Gil about it. It's something that's inspiring and something that we should all get some attention to. But anyhow, fresh from the radio field up there and an AA of longstanding, an old friend and a man that I'm sure that you're going to enjoy his story, those of you who haven't heard it, and this wonderful philosophy of AA of his. It gives me great pride to present to you Gil Lamb. I appreciate the kind introduction, Cotton, and I appreciate the invitation to come down here again. uh, I don't have, as uh, I was telling Bob out there a while ago, I don't have one tale to tell. And uh, I can't cut it too short or uh, the tale just isn't worth a damn. See, I do know this, though, that maybe if I keep telling it in the same manner long enough, I'll stay sober, and you folks will too, and quit inviting me down when you get tired of hearing it.
1: Because
0: I can't dress it up, any. I can't tell somebody else's story. I only have mine. I do know though that today it's a good day to be in AA. Every day is a good day to be in AA. Coming down here, we stopped in a filling station up there, and up on this fresh wall was written, I'm singing with glee, I'm overflowing with joy, because I've been here before Kilroy. <laughs> I So, uh, I don't know whether I got into AA before Kilroy did or not.
1: Well,
0: I'm Gil Lamb, an alcoholic, and I'm from Muleshoe. And if you don't know where Muleshoe, Texas is, just because you can't smell good, I guess. But it's sure up there. I wouldn't be probably an alcoholic if it hadn't been for a while. I
1: had
0: an idea that if I could keep my liquor in the house, in the air, like I told her, like other drinkers do, and could take a little drink when I needed it and didn't have to go outside and hunt for liquor. I wouldn't be gone maybe two or three days at a time and so forth. And she said if you'll stay sober long enough to buy a damn Frigidaire, we'll try that too. <laughs> It seemed like none of my ideas worked. None of them got anywhere. It, uh, as I said, it takes quite a little while to tell my story, and I I am going to cut it down a little bit for the benefit of those of you that have heard it so many times. And if you get up and walk back to the back and go to the left and so forth and go to the right, well, I'll understand. Now, I used to be with the tent show troop, and I'm used to people getting up and going out and looking at the clouds see if the tent's going to blow away. So it won't bother me, not in the least. I've even had people walk out that paid to get in. (laughs) But I I sure do want you to be back here with me to hear Mary. As I say, some people can get things over with in a hurry. There was this old boy that was all the way going around, nosing into things. He'd come into a person's place of business, and they're deaf. He'd be thumbing through some of the notes they have there and looking in the the piling basket, and if he'd come into a place and there was a box there and the lid wasn't tied down on it, he'd open it up see what was in the box, various things. He was, came down the street one day at the blacksmith shop and just stepped in the door to this old blacksmith and pulled a red-hot horseshoe out of there and threw it over in the dust. The dust blew up from it. This old boy came in the door, he walked over, picked up that horseshoe, and he, man, <laughs> brought her down like that, you can imagine, and the old blacksmith said, well, it's hot, ain't it? The old boy said, no, it just doesn't take me long to look at a horseshoe. <laughs> well, I'm an ex-drunkard. I'm an ex-drunkard, a fugitive from the barroom, but I'm an alcoholic. I'm still an alcoholic, and I know that I'll be an alcoholic until the day I die. I know that it can't be cured, but I found out that I can arrest it a day at a time by following this program of Alcoholics Anonymous and by you People help. So it's indeed with gratitude that I'm able to come out on a beautiful day like this and meet with you good people here in Midland and Odessa and La and Big Spring and Tucum Cherry California, there's a lot of them here I haven't seen since California. You really want to see all the Texas AAs, you should have been in Long Beach. They were out there. Nearly every other person I'd meet was from Texas, it looked like. I uh, wasn't much different from the rest of you. I started drinking when I was just a kid, 15 years old. Played in the band, took part in dramatic, still do, try to. Not very good anymore, but I still try. I remember that we were drinking our first drinks, and the first old boy took a drink of it. And he shuddered. Tears came in his eyes, and he grabbed his stomach, and carried on just till like some of us do the day over some of his whiskey. And uh, the next old boy did the same thing, but the third guy didn't go through all those antics. He got very sick. And, uh, incidentally, he got sick every time he tried to drink with it. He got sick every time. For the next three years that I was around there, he did, and they tell me he tried about four or five years more, and he just couldn't drink. It was about 10 or 12 years ago that I was where this fellow was, and we were talking about alcohol and alcoholism, And we were talking about what it had done to certain people, and I knew what it had done to me, and he did too. And this old boy said, I'm glad that I had the will to leave it alone. (laughs) Now, he actually said that, that I'm glad that I had the will to leave it alone before it did to me what it has done to some of you people. Now, not only in alcohol, but maybe some of us here in AA today take that attitude about some other people with a problem that we're glad that we have the will not to do those things. You know, we can become, in AA, uh, kind of like we have a monopoly on things, on how to live, and I think we all need to guard against it. For here's this old boy that I had seen try with all of the will at his command to drink. He didn't like to be called a wet blanket, a sissy, He didn't like to be called those things. He wanted to be one of the boys. But God had so created him that he couldn't become an alcoholic. And instead of being grateful for that fact, he turned around. And he took credit for having, let's say, character and willpower and integrity. When actually it was by the grace of God that he couldn't drink. Well, I was next on the list with this first bottle of liquor that I'd ever seen as bonded liquor, and as a young man, and I still am that way, I felt inadequate. If I had anything to do around the group of people, it is everything that I could do to muster up courage enough to stand up before the class. And I I was still that way today, and I'm still nervous here today, only today I know what not to do about it. I found that out in AA. I know just come on, get up here, and contribute what little bit I can. I know now that deep down within, I was always just a little bit afraid. To use a worn-out phrase, I know that I suffered from a terrible or a terrific inferiority conflict. Well, when I took that drink of liquor, a surge of certainty shot through my entire body, and I felt at ease. I felt like I belonged. I didn't feel inadequate, and that little feeling of fear, Had completely disappeared. And I wanted another drink, and I wanted another drink, and I got drunk. I was the only one of the four boys that got drunk. The first boy died with delirium tremens. The next boy couldn't drink, and the other one that was with us there got married, and it hadn't been a problem to him at all. But for me, I was a perfect setup. I was an alcoholic for the word go. If there had been such a thing as the Educational programs on alcohol and alcoholism. If there had been anything like AA or anything in my town, or could I have heard about it in church, which I was forced to go to every Sunday, or Sunday school, or school, I would have known right then that alcohol meant a little more to me than it did any of those other boys. But I didn't. There wasn't any information. I was told that alcohol was something to fear, it was something to be scared of, it was a boogaboo deal. You was to run from it. I had heard nothing but the angry approach toward alcohol, the hatred toward alcohol. I was told that people who drank were immoral, that people who drank would steal, that they would lie. I couldn't go along with that because... One of my boyfriends' father drank, and I thought he was one of the finest men in our town. I'd never seen him drunk, but he had taken a drink before us. I know now that he made a mistake, and I know that millions of parents are making that mistake today. He took a drink before us, and he didn't tell us that what is one man's meat could be another man's poison. He didn't tell us that what is temperance for one woman can destroy another. He didn't tell us because he didn't know. And there are still millions of people who refuse to see today. There are actually idiots that will tell you, well, we'll never have it in our house, or we keep it right there in the house on the shelf all the time. They can get it when they want. That's like saying, we'll never be bothered by rattlesnake bite. We keep the snake right in the house all the time. <laughs> like people not going to have any more children because they keep the storks there all the time.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Just about as sensible. But some of these arguments they put up is to why alcoholism will never show up in their family are plain idiotic. And it isn't because the information isn't available in any magazine that you want to name. It's because that there are some people who refuse to see. And that's why we're making progress when we get into the high school. With every ISM program that you can get in there with, and I might tell you that I'm in on all of them. <laughs> I'm fighting alcoholism, socialism, and communism, and nearly other uh, other isms that I can find. And they all tie in together to me. They're all a sickness up here first. They tie in together, and I mean that with all my heart. If I wasn't here on this subject, I'd show you how I mean. I was also told that alcohol... Cause cirrhosis of the liver, heart trouble. It'd cause hardening of the arteries. It'd give you ulcers, and it'd put you in the gutter. And I found out later that probably everybody in the family will get ulcers before the drum. <laughs> he gets some relief, or she gets some relief. But maybe the whole family is tearing their hair out up all night. And here they are lined up in a fine hotel between silk sheets.
1: <laughs>
0: so it's easy to me to understand why the alcoholic could be the last one in the family to have ulcers. I've also found out that it's a very small percent that is down in that gutter. The majority of the alcoholics are sheltered in fine homes. Maybe in penthouses, in mansions, but they're not down on that skid row. And the most of the people that you find down there are used for photographic purposes to raise money by, you know, the dry organization. Like the woman came through Shoe, you know. Uh, the woman that came through Shoe that time found out I was interested in alcohol and alcoholism. She did They didn't tell her in quite what way. She wanted to know if I helped them, wanted to help them a little financially. And said, "What?" Are, I said, well, just what are you doing? We're fighting liquor. And I said, hell no, I've been fighting it for 30 years. <laughs> and I give up. Now, you all can go on and fight it if you want to. But I'm interested in educating people about it, if I can. And I certainly am. I'll just speak at a slightest little hint or invitation in any church or in any school at nearly any time. If I think that I can get the message across that alcoholism is a disease and that it is a respectable disease. Well, I could have no respect for the things that I'd heard. I played in a dance band. I was the youngest member in that band, and I had a chance to observe quite a number of these people. And I didn't see any of them that looked like any nervous tissue was gone from them or anything like that, or that looked like they were in the gutter, or that had any of these other horrible things. I didn't think they were liars, moral lepers, so I couldn't believe anything that I'd heard about alcohol and alcoholism. And there are a lot of pitches still today that are just as untruthful as they can be in my opinion, about alcohol and about alcoholism. And they do a detriment because they will not stand looking at in the, in the bright light of day. They just will not stand up. And if we're to tell young people anything, we'd better tell them the truth. That's what the Bible says. The truth will set you free. And that's what I believe about alcohol and alcoholism. Whether you're trying to educate a young person or a person that's on the verge of becoming an alcoholic, the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth will set you free. Now when I started telling this story, I used to say, I have a little girl. And I caught myself at Austin up here, December the 13th, starting to say, I have a little She was a little girl nine years ago when I was in Austin, but she's as tall as I am and graduating from my school now. So I have a big girl, and I don't want her to hate liquor, and I don't want her to look down her nose upon people who drink, but I do want her to know enough about it to know that that alcohol is the first cousin to ether and fluorophore, that alcohol is a depressant. And I think if I can look at it as that, I won't take a drink and get in a car and start down the road anymore. That it is a depressant. It'd be kind of hard to sell me on the idea that alcohol was a stimulant when I stood at a damn bar and had a cigarette burn into my flesh and nearly burned my fingers into
1: <laughs>
0: Idiotic, isn't it? Say, well, it's so a stimulant. I just couldn't. Uh, <laughs>
1: Yes, and had a man knock it out
0: of there and have those big blisters in between your fingers there and say, my God, man, what are you trying to do, burn yourself up? I've got the scar here on the back of my hand where I lay it over there on the radiator in San Angelo. around Christmas time and just fry and cook right there. And my roommate come in, and I was wondering what was the matter with my hand the next morning. He said, well, you were cooking it. And I came in. I didn't know it. I was completely anesthetized from the sedative action of alcohol. And I believe, if, if my daughter listens to what I tell her, that when she goes to a party and she has to take a drink to enjoy that party, she has to take a depressant, maybe she shouldn't be around those people at all. Were you ever influenced with where you went by how much liquor they had at a certain place? Well, I've been. I liked these people over here the best, but I went with these over here because they had plenty to drink.
1: And I could tolerate
0: them after I got drunk enough. And after I got far enough, they couldn't any tolerate me on either side. When I was a very young man, another lad and I were to play at the U.S. in the high school auditorium, And I had a high note to hit, and I'd miss that high note sometimes, and it liked to worry me to death. And I happened to think about this drink that I would had and what it had done to me, and I managed to get a drink before I stepped out there, and I stepped out there and played it, and I hit the high note, and I was poised, and I felt sure of myself. If I could tell a person what alcoholism was in possibly one sentence, that'd be it. Using it to face situations, not using it to make a good situation better, to enjoy yourself or to relax, but using it to face situations. and Right there I was using it at that early age, you see, to face situations. I used it for quite a time. My mother died when I was a very young man, and she died from a disease that had a stigma attached to it just like alcoholism still has today. My mother died from a disease about which there was a great deal of misinformation, ignorance, misunderstanding. My mother died from a disease that if you had it in your home, people didn't care about visiting with you. They didn't care about their children coming over to your house or your children coming over to their house. My mother died from the dread disease of consumption. Now today, they call it tuberculosis. And there are great programs to educate people about tuberculosis. The danger signals to watch out for how to take care of yourself. And when they get in the latter stages and start to hemorrhage, their are places to send people to rehabilitate. Well ironically, a few years later, I was nearly destroyed from another disease, a disease with a stigma attached to it, and of course it was alcoholism. But it's the same thing. People don't care too much about visiting with you after you get down in the latter stages of alcoholism. They don't care about your children coming over to their house or your children coming over to their house. There's a great deal of misinformation, ignorance, and downright indifference toward alcoholism today. Shortly after my mother's death, I was offered a chance to go on the road with a show. They carried about 50 people, had a band, and orchestra, and you know all that. I went on the road with this show, and shortly through my God-given ability, I was given a line of parts, I played a musical instrument, and then I got to where I could sing a little bit, I thought, and uh, I did a few singing specialties, and I fit right in. I was, yes, Ethel, one on the phone. By golly, here she was in here, anonymous, too. Well, see, uh, I don't know where I was in this story now. You tell me where I
1: was? Let's see
0: here. been us Huh? Oh, yeah, I was on this show, wasn't I? I had not got fired off that show yet. But anyway, they made me feel pretty cocky. I was the youngest person on the show. They treated me royally. They had a line of parts that I fitted into, and uh, it just made it dandy. But uh, not only was I developing my talent, I was developing in my alcoholism. I was getting along pretty well with that. And I was using it to face all kinds of situations. But my youth was carrying me through. But after about five years, they started telling me about it. It is interfering with my work. I wasn't doing my work like I should. I was letting them down on certain points and this and that. And I shouldn't do that. Other people couldn't get by with it, and they'd been letting me, and so they started calling a halt to it. And I thought I should slow down, and I thought I shouldn't do those things, but it seems that I couldn't make any progress toward it. I'd I'd like to say this. I liked the people that I was working for. I liked the job. I could find nothing wrong with it at all. But finally they got tired of fooling with me and they fired me. But I had developed a little reputation, so I managed to step on to another job with a better line of salary and a better line of parts, and that made me pretty cocky. Sure, I wasn't going to do anything about my drinking yet. And uh, after about two years there, the same thing over again. They started telling me that they couldn't put up with this. It was affecting my work, that I was letting them down on certain points in my work. I should do something about it. And I decided they were right, and I tried to do something about it, but it seems that I couldn't, and they fired me. And then after that, I received a telegram from a man that had one of the finest repertory shows, I guess, in America. And he said he'd like to have me with his show the next season, if I would stay sober. And that was quite a challenge, and certainly I would stay sober. I'd go on to that show, and I knew with those fine people I'd manage to stay sober. I went on there, and I rehearsed with them, and six weeks out, I got drunk. And back into that squirrel cage again. Still a very young man. It seems that I couldn't do anything about it, and they messed with me a couple of years also, fired me and rehired me twice and finally let me go for good. I'll never forget what he said to me down at the depot, and incidentally that was in Austin, Texas. If you ever decide that you want to stay sober, we'll be very glad to have you back. We'll make a place for you. Well, he didn't know it, but I'd already decided that I wanted to stay sober. Haven't you been there? I decided that I wanted to stay sober. I didn't want to hurt those people. I didn't want to lose that job. I didn't want to hurt myself. But I just couldn't stay so. And then I started to run for myself, like most of us do, and I went out to California. I had a sister out there. went out there and was out there just a short time. And I read an ad where they were auditioning for a radio play, and I went down and auditioned for this. I think it was the, the Kingdom Builders is what it eventually came out, and it went on the air from coast to coast right after Roosevelt was elected the first time. I went out and auditioned for that. They made a transcription of it and said I'd hear from And I went home to wait, and you know how we are. We're nervous. We want things to happen in a hurry. We want all the payments made and all the mortgages paid off and everything cleared and the checks taken up. We want it to happen fast now, but nothing happened right fast, and finally the call came in. It came in that I'd been accepted for that job, fine and dandy, and they told me all about it, but I wasn't listening too well because I had taken a drink. I had taken a drink that day, and that job that I needed, the job that I wanted, it's a job that I never even dreamed I'd ever get a chance at, I didn't even get started on. You mean to tell me alcoholism isn't a disease? It isn't a disease of the mind, the body. It isn't a spiritual disease. Certainly it is. For me then, one drink was too many and a thousand wasn't enough. For me then, one drink set up a compulsion within me over which I had no control. And there's six million more, they tell me, just like me. An obsession of the mind stronger than any habit, besides the sensitivity of my body. All of that coupled together. Sure, I couldn't stay around there anymore with my sister, she didn't understand me, I didn't understand myself. I left there with an Indian and went to Leadville, Colorado, from Leadville up to Climax, and up there were the mines, the molybdenum mines, and I got a job as a shoot blaster's helper handling dynamite. It was dangerous, but it wasn't as dangerous as that liquor. Because that dynamite only exploded now and then, but every time I went down to Leadville and lifted up that liquor, it exploded every time. It tore me down, mentally, physically, spiritually, financially, every way that it can tear a person down. The powder smoke and the liquor became too much for me, and I finally drifted back to Texas. And we used to have a line in one of our shows that said to be without friends Mm. is a serious form of poverty." I didn't know what that line meant, but I did then. Because I drunk myself away from nearly all my friends, and those who were the nearest and dearest to me seemed to be able to do nothing for me, and that's usually the case, too. You know that, regardless of how hard they tried. And as it happens to most people, when you drake yourself out from under a shelter, the jailhouse doors open up for you, And they start putting you in jail. It seemed like to me the sicker I became, the more often I was put in jail, the more desperate my condition, the longer I was kept in jail. It it, it kind of worked out like this, that they were trying to change the the, the chemistry of my body and heal my sick personality with jail (laughs) sensitivity. And it doesn't work. I bet I've heard this 500 times. I can't understand a fellow like you. And I knew that they couldn't. I'd heard it from smart business people, people in all walks of life. There's one old judge down there that I knew if I could just get to talk to him that he could give me an answer. And I sat down and I laid it out on the table to him everything I could think of and when I got through he said Gilbert I can't understand a fellow like you when he said that I seemed to fall into a pit of darkness and there is no blacker darkness than that I don't believe there is in a person at that stage in their drinking career when they say it's all up to you there's nothing to it it's just up to you and everything you've been able to do seems to not make a dent in it, not one eye of it. Well, it was about that time that my wife had read an article in Reader's Digest, and they convinced me to go back before another judge and to be sent down to Austin,
1: Texas.
0: I went down there, and I was sent down there, not for the treatment of alcoholism like people go today. I was sent down there to be locked up as a hopeless, habitual drunkard. But as I said, my wife had read this article in Reader's Digest about this group of people in New York and Akron, Ohio, and some of those people were people who had been drinkers just like I had, and some of those people had gotten sober, and they were helping other people to get sober, and my wife wrote a letter to them and told them where I was going and ask them if anybody in Austin, Texas knew anything about this fellowship. I'm so glad there was somebody up there to answer that letter, and there was, because an answer came back to her immediately, and they sent along a little pamphlet that gave her hope. And do you know they're still answering letters like that today from all over the world? And I'd like to throw this in, that they asked you and I to send $3 a year apiece. That they can keep somebody up there to answer those letters. Yes. They gave her a box number to write to in Austin, and she wrote to that box number one two five. And the day that letter was received there, a man dropped everything that he was doing and started pulling the wires to get in there to see me. And you didn't come in there like you do today and say I'm a member of AA and say we've we'll arranged for you to be in there and have a meeting with us. You had to know somebody. You had to pull some wires. It wasn't too easy to get in there. This man had neither the time nor the money to spare, but he did what the little article said in Reader's Digest. He came, and he came that day. And most of the people that I had talked to before that were people that kind of looked out the window and listened to you halfway, you know, or looked at their watch and said, I have an appointment in five minutes what do you want to see me about and that would make you so nervous you couldn't tell them anything because you couldn't begin to start (coughs) in five minutes I recommend to you if you go to see anybody with a deep seated problem be prepared to give them some time don't go there with the idea of laying down a ten dollar bill this is just my opinion this is the and say it here this will help get you a feed get you a drink of tea Be prepared and give him some time. No, this old boy didn't look down at my shoes. and He didn't look at his watch. He didn't look out the window when he got in there. Old Ed looked at me right straight in the eye. And he acted like he had all the time in the world. And he said, do you want to tell me about it? And of course I did. And I went again, and I unloaded it all. I told him all about it exactly as it happened to me. The people I'd hurt said I didn't want to hurt, the lies I told you that I didn't want to tell. And when I got through, he said, I understand. And I've told you this for the last eight years, and I'll tell you it to you again today. Those fans are the kindest words I've ever heard in my life. He said, I understand. Because I've done a lot of these things that you've done, and some of them worse, some of them not quite so bad. I've hurt a lot of people that I didn't want to hurt, and I've lied to people when I wanted to tell the truth. I've made promises that I intended to keep that hurt me deeply that I couldn't keep. He said, I think that you're like me. You're probably suffering from the sickness of alcoholism, and if you are, we need you, and you need us in Alcoholics are not. He said, there's nothing can be done for a cure about it. I've been in a lot of hospitals, and so have my friends and spent thousands of dollars. But there is a group of us that meet over here at the old Drisco Hotel every Wednesday evening. And we share our experiences, our faith, and our hope with each other. We call on a kind and loving God as we understand him to help us stay sober just one day at a time. Said, we'd like to have you if you'd like to come in with us. Well I wanted to do something about it, and I was a pretty sick individual, and I spent been down the road, and I did want to do something about it. So he wrote to my wife, she came down there, and we got out. And I started going to AA, but I wasn't very successful. <clears throat> I had six long years to go yet, of jails, of good hotels, of flop houses, of jails, and finally wound up six years later in Joplin, Missouri, and I said, I'll never try, not one more time. I can't do it. I can never say to my wife again, would you go to AA with me if I try again? Because I know she'd say, what's the use, and why do you want to take up their time anymore? And rightfully so. So that little spark that usually kennels within us that makes us want to... Be better people, to try again to be better people, had completely died out. But I got out of that jail, and somehow or other I met a man there that was a non-alcoholic, a man that had read the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And he started to try to help me. And he found out I went to AA down in Lovell he called down to Lubbock, and if I'd have known who he was talking to, I'd have run out of that town or somewhere. Because he talked to a pretty hard-boiled old contractor down there. And Carl, ordinarily, after a couple of shots at this, he didn't have much time. He liked to do 12-step work, but he said not all on the same person. And if I'd known he was talking to Carl, I wouldn't have been there when he came back, but I didn't know it. And you know what he did? He came back to me and he said... You have some wonderful friends down there. A man just told me to help you if we could, because he believed that you were worthy. Now, you don't go by statistics and alcoholics, anonymous. not. There was nothing on the record book that showed that I deserved any more help. Everybody in West Texas and New Mexico had tried to help me, and nobody had made a dent in it. And it was truly up to me now. But yet, here was this man saying, "For God's sake, help him if you can." We believe he's deserted. And when he told me that, the little spark glowed up again, and I wanted to try again. And I did. And I came back to AA and love. And it seemed to me that the steps were a little broader, and they were a little closer together. And we started up them again. Each day asking for guidance. And finally, this group out here and all over this area sent me to New York as your representative. I remember they called me in down there at Loveth one day, and I hadn't had time to get together any money. They were working me to death, looked like. I hadn't had time to get together any money, and still haven't had time. And uh, they said for me to come in early that was going to leave for New York next day or two. So I came in, and two of the old boys took me downtown, and they wanted to dress me up. Well, I didn't want to do that, and they said, This is for us. We want you to be the best dressed representative in New York City. Well, that's pretty good, and we got to look at these clothes over here, and here was this suit, I think it's a 110. And uh, I looked at it, and then we looked over here, and here's another one that's 55, and another one I said, you know, Bob, I think what we will do here, I'll take these two 55 dollars
1: <laughs> And he
0: said, no, that's one thing that we discussed. He said that uh, we buy you the finest damn suit." And a pair of flax in the store, but no two suits. We don't want you to get up there and have any decisions to make as to what suits. <laughs> so I thought, that was, I thought that was pretty cute. And of course, it had been a long, long time, and the last airplane I'd been up in, you know, I, I was drunk, and that was over Austin, too, in an old open cockpit. I walked out to this big plane and looked at it there in Dallas, and old Cersei was there. And I was about half scared getting on that big plane until I looked back on the tail and it said AA. And I I knew it'd be all right then. said, watch your step. And I said, you darn sure have to. Left in AA. That was a great experience for me. I came back, went up to Mule Shoe, And I tell you, things started opening up. First thing I had to do moving into that little town with a dead gum record like I had of all over the country, I had to make up my mind what I was going to do. Because it wasn't too long ago, somebody said you ought to get that old boy to make you a talk there in front of Lions Club. said he's got quite a talk on alcoholism. So, whether to tell him this story or not and throw myself on the mercy of people in a small town was a decision. My wife and I decided to make it, Cause we wasn't going to have any yay who here and say, see, hey, you've got old Gil Lamb here. God, you ever seen him drunk? He'll mess your town up. Woo! He'll close up the church. He'll ruin your chamber of commerce. You know, so i tell you what I did. I accepted that invitation. I went before that Lions Club, and I decided I had done everything to myself, and there wasn't anything left for anybody else to do. So if I was on solid enough a fitting, I would put it right to them, and I did. I told them the whole story, the truth. That's what I did. I said, the truth, if the truth is going to make me free, they're going to get the truth. And I told it to them. And after that, I was asked to speak to the Rotary Club, then the Junior Chamber of Commerce, and then the Methodist Church, and then the WMU uh, district meeting, finally to the... Cub Scouts, Blue and Gold Bankers. Now I said, what in the damn hell will I talk to them about?
1: <laughs>
0: but i tell you what, I talked to them about things that I had learned in AA. You must love first if you expect to be given. You must give first if you expect to be given. To you. And live one day at a time. Live this day just like it is going to be your last. A little talk like that. worked out just fine. Then they asked me to talk to the Rainbow Girl. <laughs> But I want to tell you the key to this, this whole thing. After this six years of coming in and out and going back and forth, and after telling everybody up there that would sit still, and I talked to every church in town except one, I mean the entire congregation and their Sunday school classes and their men's clubs and their brotherhoods and their fellowship meetings and everything, I'm not bragging about it, I'm grateful for it. It looked like every time you talk to another group here somebody else would come in from some direction or other. We were having a Chamber of Commerce banquet in nineteen fifty seven. It was the end of the year banquet. And they back and forth, they were passing the plaques, you know, like they do. The retiring president gives the incoming president the plaque, and then the incoming president gives the other plaques, and the outgoing secretary gives the incoming secretary the plaques. They just plaque them back and forth. <laughs> you know, you'd think it's a darn good place to be in the plaque is That's what I was thinking. <laughs> and now, this man said, we come to the highlight of the evening when we honor our outstanding city, and he called my name. He called my name. I knew it was going to be a young banker there, but it wasn't the young banker's name that he called. He called my name. And the tears just burst out of my eyes, just like they would have yours, and they flowed down my cheeks, and I thought, what has God? Here are these people that knew all about me. Eighty-five percent of them in there knew my story just as well as you people do here. And they were saying, I was the outstanding Now, don't misunderstand this. This is not a victory for me. But this is a victory for Ed down there in Austin. I pulled the wires to get into that institution to tell me that he understood my problem. This is a victory for the man in Joplin that took time out to tell me that maybe I was a little sicker and maybe if I'd try again, I'd make it. This is a victory for those good folks down there at Lubbock, and old Carl said, help him again, will you? We believe that he's working. I'm so grateful to be a member of our Fund. I know that some of you are saying, well... I wish I could do something for somebody. And I know how I felt that night in Austin when I sat there. And I heard Horace, God bless you. How he inspired me to want to stay sober and want to do something to help somebody else. How I wished that I could do something like that. And how I heard Marty Mann there tell her story, and then I went on for six more years and got drunk. But I kept coming back to AA. And I say that to you tonight. I don't care how many times you've tried to come in AA. You keep coming back as long as God lets you live. For you meet somebody in here you desperately need to know. you hear something said that you need to hear. You get sober. You fall in love with this program just like I. I know that some of us feel like, well, I have nothing to offer. I, I, I can't get my teeth into it. And I think of this little thing that was written at the bottom of this invitation from the prison group. It said, there is at least one highly important and useful task in this world that will not be done unless you do it. There's some faith upon which there will be no smile of joy unless you put it there. There is someone with a breaking heart that will never have the courage to try again unless you share with them your curse. There is some person that will not get through this day of doubt unless you pass along a simple word of the curse. God has provided no substitute for you. And now my little favorite. As they say, the person you help today may be your salvation tomorrow, and I know that to be true in my case. This little poem that said, I met a stranger in the night whose lamp had ceased to shine. I paused, and I let him light his lamp on mine. A storm came up in the night, and it shook the world about. And when it finally calmed down, my lamp. But back to me this stranger came. His lamp was still glowing fine. He had retained that precious flame. And this time, his lamp lighted mine. Thank you for listening.